one of my favorite things to ask people in order to learn more about them is to ask what kinds of places they've traveled. I think if you ask somebody this question, you kind of learn quickly a lot about them and what makes them tick, what they enjoy. So if I've asked you that, or if you've been in my home and you've seen that gigantic map on the wall, um, thank you for obliging me. I love hearing where you all have been, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad, and what you've experienced, what you've enjoyed. But one place I wager none of you have ever been is Tristan da Cunha. Anybody? All right. Tristan da Cunha is a volcanic island located in the South Atlantic Ocean. It's 1,750 miles from South Africa and 2,000 miles from South America. In fact, the nearest landmass that's in all inhabited by humans is 1,500 miles to the north, another island. About 270 people live on Tristan da Cunha, a population uh, consisting of about 80 families. Uh, the only way to get there uh, is by boat from South Africa, and that takes seven days and it only happens nine times a year, so you have to plan ahead. And just in case you're wondering at this point, they're not accepting any more settlers there. So you can't permanently settle down in Tristan. You can visit, you can't stay. And all of that kind of adds up to make Tristan da Cunha the world's most remote inhabited place, or at least island. And just to make that abundantly clear, uh, Tristan includes several other uninhabited islands nearby, one of which is called Inaccessible Island. So don't even try that one. Uh, for some of us, I think coming off of a hectic, jam-packed week, maybe spending some time thousands of miles away from everybody, sounds nice about now. Uh, but imagine, just imagine what life would be like living on an island separated from the world, far off from everyone and everything. We'd have new definitions for what isolation and solitude mean. I had fun researching Tristan this past week. It kind of blew my mind uh, to be far off from pretty much everything. I just don't have a, a category for that. But this morning we come to a passage of the Bible addressed to people who were far off, who were separate, strangers. And the shocking thing is that as we study this passage, we come to realize that those people is us. We are those people. We were strangers. We were far off. So as I said before, this is our sixth Sunday, and this is our sixth study in the New Testament book of Ephesians. So if you're, this is your first time joining us, we're glad you're here. You're very welcome with us. And what we do here, what we plan to do at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church isn't super flashy. Uh, so what we do on sun, Sunday in and Sunday out is just take the Bible, which we understand to be God's true and authoritative words in our life. We pick a certain book out of it, and then we just work through that book Sunday by Sunday, seeking to understand what God would have to say to us by his spirit through his word. And Ephesians is what we're in uh, for the next several months. And Ephesians is a letter written about 2,000 years ago by one of the first missionaries of the Christian church, Paul. And it's written to what we think is a, a kind of a a group of churches in and around the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so far in our letter, uh, we've seen Paul really dig in on what a Christian is. He's taught about what it means to be united to Christ by faith. So we've seen that Christians have every blessing in Christ. 
We've seen that they have spiritual life in Christ. And today we come to a passage where we'll see that they have great peace in Christ. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it. You can turn to Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Just listen up and I'll read it for us. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can easily read, um, we have Bibles, paperback Bibles out in the connect table. So if you're a visitor or if you're a member and you need a Bible, pick up one of those. We have plenty. Um, Print is pretty small though, so just make sure you look at that before you leave. Uh, But that's yours uh, if uh, you'd like it. It's our gift to you. So please follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 2. And we're reading this morning verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, so there's a lot there. Uh, For this morning, let's break this passage into three separate sections. So first, let's see who we were. Uh, Second, let's see what Christ has done. And third, let's see who we are. So who we were, what Christ has done, and then who we are. First, who we were. Now, we see that pretty clearly there, I think, in those first three verses, verses 11 to 13. We were cut off from God and from his people. So if you look back at this chapter 2 so far, Paul has reminded us of different things. He's reminded Gentiles back there in verse 1 that they were dead in their sin apart from Christ. And then in verse 4, he branched out and he talked to both Jews and Gentiles. And now here in in verse 11 in our passage for this morning, he's right back talking to Gentiles again. And he's telling them, he's telling us to remember who we were. Now the term Gentile is not one we hear a lot nowadays, but it's a term we see all over the Bible. And really what it is, is a Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. 
And that sounds kind of like a random distinction if you just kind of look at the world nowadays, but understanding this split between Jews and Gentiles is really important if we're to understand the Bible and to understand God's salvation plan. So back in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, uh, we see God choose certain people to bless, certain people to work through, certain people to use for his glory. So chapter 12 of Genesis, God spoke directly to a man named Abraham and he made him a promise. He said he would bless him and he would bless his children. He would make him great. He would bless many others through him. And then God took Abraham's son and then he took Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and he made them a great nation. He changed Jacob's name to Israel and he made him a father of a great people. And then throughout the Old Testament, book by book, we see that God remains faithful to that nation of Israel. He protects them from famine and war. He gives them his law. He grants them success and blessing. And down through the beginning years of Israel's history, you can read about that in the first few books of the Bible, God makes it clear that he's not blessing Israel because of anything kind of blessworthy in them. Uh, so this is a passage I think we've already looked at three times in our six sermons, but it keeps coming up. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses, who's a prophet for Israel, says to the Jews, You are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God chose you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Great. We are special to God. But then it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, speaking to the, the Israelites. For you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you. So God chose Israel. He chose to pour out his love on them because he loved them. He gave favor to Abraham and Jacob. He chose to bless their descendants in a special way. And so this blessing made a split between Israel and the other nations. Like, like a rag, if you take a rag and you just rip it in half, you see a rip just kind of going through all the rest of the Old Testament, separating God's people from the other nations. God's blessings were for his people, for anyone who joined his people. So as we come to Ephesians 2 this morning, we were helped by that bit of backstory, I think, because Paul digs into the history here. And this history is of critical importance to the gospel. So Paul is talking to Gentiles and he's reminding them who they were at one time. As we read in verses 11 to 13 about the marks of who they were, brothers and sisters, we see who we were. So what are these marks? Well, he says there in verse 11 that they were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So for God's Old Testament people of Israel, circumcision was a visible sign given to his people to show that they were his people, not Gentiles. And Paul here says that uh, the Gentiles were called kind of this uncircumcision. They were those people. They were, they were nicknamed that by the, the Jews. They lacked this sign of God's special love and protection. They were on the outside looking in. And then Paul says there in verse 12 that they were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And those three things all kind of like feed on each other. So as those who were on the outside looking in, the Gentiles were alienated, Right? They were alienated from the nation of Israel. They were not only on the outside, but Israel was commanded to kind of keep that division clear. 
They destroyed their enemies. They kept themselves pure from other nations. So there was this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. It was, it was a hostile dividing wall. As a Gentile, you were denied access to Israel and you were denied access to God's blessings. We see that next there, as Paul says, that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. So what does that mean? Well, in his mercy, God made covenants, right? He made promises to Israel. So he promised Abraham, like we just looked at in Genesis 12. He said, I will bless you. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. And then he promised King David that a descendant would come to sit on his throne forever. These are wonderful, wonderful promises from God. And they gave his people a hope. They gave them a future. They gave them confidence. That even when they would rebel against God and turn their backs on God, in the end, he was committed to save them, to rescue them. These promises were not made by some earthly ruler, some kind of powerful political monarch. These promises were made to Israel by the all-powerful king of the universe. And so they were sure that they were going to come to pass. And yes, I hear that noise. We can all focus on this. Uh, the Gentiles, though, they were strangers to these covenant promises. And because of that, they were strangers to the one who was promised in those covenants. The one all those covenants kind of pointed forward to. They were, as Paul says in there in verse 2 or 12, separated from Christ. So the situation is clear, right? There at the end of verse 12, they had no hope and were without God in the world. What a bleak outlook. What a bleak outlook for the Gentiles, but what a bleak outlook for us. Without hope, without God. Our separation from God is not kind of geographical. It can't be measured by nautical miles like those good folks on Tristan. Their distance from civilization. No, our, our separation is spiritual. And it goes to the very root of who we are. Like the Gentiles, in our sin, we're cut off from God by birth. By nature. And it's important here to note that this is a pitiful state, but it's in no way forced on us by God. Now, the Bible is clear that we're opposed to God. We have set ourselves up as his enemies. We have promoted our own gods as worthy of praise instead of him. We're hostile towards him. And so we're without hope, with no ability to kind of bridge that gap. And even if we had the ability, with no desire to bridge that gap full of hatred towards God. I, I wonder if that sounds kind of harsh this morning. I mean, it sounds a little bit unnecessary, maybe unfair towards God or us to say that in our sin, we're God's enemies. I mean, certainly there's some squishy middle ground, right? I mean, we all know people who think highly of God. Maybe we are people who think highly of God. Uh, we talk to him. We talk about him. We like carols at Christmas. We go to church on Easter. We respect God. We're not, we're not serious. We're not devout, but we're for sure not God's enemies. We're all for him. He's good. And, and friend, I understand that, but just permit me to press on that for a little bit. Because I think that view might make sense if we kind of have a small view of God, but it doesn't make any sense at all if we look at the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is a sovereign ruler over everything. He has made everything, and he's made everything purposefully 
He's made it for a good purpose, and that purpose is to bring him glory, bring him praise. He designed every person, every animal, every tree to in some way point to him, to say that he is powerful, that he has the authority, that he's good. And at the pinnacle of his creation, God made us, he made you and he made me in his image to find our greatest delight in him. But each of us has chosen to reject that purpose, to put other things above God, to worship other things above him. So we found our contentment in our homes and our jobs rather than God. We placed our meaning in our families or in our body image rather than God. We've given ourselves over to pleasures like food and entertainment rather than delighting ourselves in the eternal pleasures of God. And so in God's eyes, we're not neutral. We worship other things. We're rebels. We've committed treason against the crown. We've spurned God's good plan. So do you see how no one can straddle this fence and kind of like be half in, half out of a relationship with God? Either you are God's people or you are God's enemy. There's no middle ground for sinners. So every single sinner has no hope and is without God in the world. And furthermore, from this passage, we see that this hostility with God actually impacts not only kind of our, our spiritual state between us and God, but it affects our relationships with other people too. So it distorts our relationships with everyone around us, especially other people made in God's image. Sin not only offends God, but it hurts those around us. It always has collateral damage. It's never contained. So friend, don't, don't ever fool yourselves into thinking that secret sins don't affect anyone else. They most certainly do. So whether it's a, a lustful glance in the office, gives you kind of a feeling of life and joy, or, or it's a thoughts of bitterness or kind of rehashing broken relationships and conversations with people that have hurt you so you can have a sense of, of rest. Or those tiny words of gossip about other people that make you feel like a big deal. Those pet habits, we think, don't do much harm. But they destroy and they erode our relationships with others in the church. In our sin, our desire is for, think about this, in our sin, our desire is for God's place. We want to be God. But what does everybody else want? They want to be God too. In their sin, they want to be the, the king of the universe. And so in our combined mutiny against God, we butt heads. We find ourselves at odds with everyone else. And the more and more we kind of like smooth things over and patch up peace, the more embroiled in strife we become. So we're helpless. We're hopeless. What can ever change this? Well, we thought about who we were. Let's continue on quickly then and see what Christ has done. This is the answer. Look, we, look there at the first two words of verse 14. But now, right? If you were here two weeks ago or whatever it was when we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, chapter two uh, you may remember that kind of pivotal verse 4, right? We were apart from Christ. We were dead in our sin. But God, verse 4, but God intervened. But God had mercy. Well, Paul doesn't seem to have gotten enough of that wonderful, but God. Because here he, he has the same setup. So he gives us a terrible situation in verses 11 to 13. We're separated from God, from Christ. 
But now, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And once again, Paul attempts to just blow us away with the wonderful mercy of God. Because God has done something. He's done something about our helpless state. He's done something to save us. He's intervened. So over the centuries, one common view of God has been that he's some sort of divine creator. He's good. Uh, he made the world. He enabled it to kind of govern itself. And then he left it to go its own way. But here we see that that's, that's, nothing's farther from the truth. The God of the Bible is intimately concerned with us. He's aware of our sin. He's aware of our wrongdoing. His just anger is awakened by our sin, but he's overwhelmingly merciful. He's aware of, of every sin and every wrongdoing, but his, not only is his justice awakened, his, his anger awakened, but his mercy is awakened by our wretchedness. And he reaches out to bring peace. There's a famous account during World War I where uh, the armies of England and Germany uh, we're in their respective battle trenches, paused uh, in the war, and then they, and they paused on a Christmas Eve. You might have heard the story. For a length of time, they, they sang carols together. They exchanged gifts. They buried their dead. And I, I don't get tired of that story. There's been songs written about it. There's been books written about it. It's wonderful. Because for a moment, the, the people on the other side were not just targets. They were people. They were men. They were sons. They were brothers. There was this little length where there was peace again. But the thing is, I think that story is so wonderful for us because it's so unusual. Peace in this world does not last. That peace did not last. That was 1914. The war continued three, four more years. Thousands, countless thousands killed. But I think that that kind of peace is often what we think about. We kind of impose that idea of peace onto peace when we think about it in Scripture. Just a temporary halt in strife. A brief absence of conflict until something else terrible comes up. But church, we must understand in this passage that God's peace is so much better than that. God's peace changes everything. It lasts forever. Because God's peace is the gift of himself. Paul continues there in verse 14. He says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that great chasm, that great divide between Jew and Gentile, Jesus has kind of taken a sledgehammer to that wall. He's crushed it. And Paul is expanding to, to both Jews and Gentiles. He's saying that Jesus is our peace. He's made us both one. How? Well, let's keep going. Paul gets into it. He says that Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God communicated certain laws to his people. Uh, they were many. They were diverse. Uh, God commanded Israel to make sacrifices to him for their sin. He commanded them to deal justly with each other and to honor him. And as Israel obeyed or, or disobeyed this, these laws, they were reminded again and again that they needed something else. They needed God's mercy. They needed God's salvation. Sacrifices reminded them that the animals that were killed for their sin should have been them. And all their, the laws reminded them that they could never fully please God. But then Christ came. 
and he abolished the need for sacrifice because he was the sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And he abolished the condemnation that we deserve from disobeying the law by perfectly obeying God in our place and bearing God's wrath against our law-breaking. But Paul says Jesus did this there in verse 15, so that what? So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. It's a theme of Ephesians. This is what we've been talking about every single time we've gathered together. The good news of the gospel is that we can be united to Christ by faith. And as we're joined to him, we'll find that Christ's life is our life. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. Christ's position before God is our position before God. We saw this there in verse 4 of chapter 2, where God has made us alive together with Christ. And then we saw it again there in verse 10, where he has created us new in Christ. You see, both Jew and Gentile could not have any hope to be acceptable in their sin. But in Christ, Jew and Gentile have been made a new humanity. A new kind of third humanity that looks that doesn't look at nationality or, or language, but at a sinner's position in Christ. In church, we're part of that new creation. We're united to God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And what does that mean for us? It means that we're God's beloved sons and daughters with whom he is well pleased. Jesus has reconciled us both to God in one body. The dividing wall has been struck down. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and the dividing wall, even greater dividing wall between us and God. And Jesus has accomplished wonderful peace. How? There in verse 16. Through the cross. Killing the hostility. You see, Jesus died on the cross to bear the sin of everyone who would turn to him. The very act of the killing of the Son of God was the act that killed sin itself. And you think about all the, the movies with kind of a plot twist and just kind of like, whoa, that just happened. This beats all of that. As an English minister from 100 years ago, Armitage Robinson put it, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too. The death of Jesus was a death of sin. Praise him. <coughs> if you're here and you're, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, this is why we get so excited about Jesus. This is why we take Sunday mornings to gather together and worship. It's because of that cross. We were in sin, deserving of death. Death is God's punishment for sin. It's separation from him forever in hell. That's what's in store for us. We're at war with our creator. And he's good, so he's judged us and promised to punish us. But he doesn't stop there. He has planned from the very beginning of time to send his son to take on our humanity, to live a perfect life, fully obedient to God, to deserve God's blessing, but then to take God's curse in our place. Jesus came and he accomplished peace. And in verse 17, we see that he preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. And friends, this morning, he preaches peace to you through his word. He calls you to repent of your sin and to turn to him 
to experience true peace. He will restore you. He will give you access to the Father. God will be not only your judge, but your Father. There in verse 18. You will become part of God's family. So, won't you respond to that invitation? Don't pass it by. That's not the sermon of this church. That's a sermon given by Jesus himself. He doesn't just want to bless you in this life. He wants to give you eternal life, eternal blessing. So turn to him. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. I understand there's lots of questions about that. But come talk to us. Talk to anybody you've seen up here. We'd love nothing more with this afternoon than to tell you how you can be right with God, given peace through Christ. That brings us to our third and final point this morning. So we've seen who we were, we've seen what Christ has done, and now we will see who we are. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this new people, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ, is pictured here by Paul as a nation full of equal rights citizens, a household of family members who are equally loved, Equally important. And this was all part of God's plan all along. So we talked before about God making a promise to Abraham. Well, remember, that promise was to bless Abraham, and through Abraham, all the families of the earth. And so church, most of us are Gentiles here this morning. This is, a, this is our promise. We're evidence that God has brought this about, that he's welcomed not just his special people in the Old Testament, but now everyone to come to him through faith in Christ. He says that Christ is the cornerstone the one without whom the entire edifice just crumbles to the ground. And then what does he call us there in verse 22? Or verse 21, he says that we're a holy temple and then that we're built together into a dwelling place for God. What was the temple? What was the purpose of the temple? It was a place where for hundreds of years God met with his people, where he gave them access to his holy presence, where he accepted their worship and their offerings for sin. It was, as John Stott says, the focal point of Israel's identity as the people of God. But now, now the temple is not in a physical location anymore. The temple is in a spiritual location. It's in us. We are God's temple, the church. We're the place where God meets with his people, the place in which we hear his word, in which we give him worship. We're dwelled by his spirit. So Christian, be reminded here that in union with Christ, we're kind of inducted into a family. There's no way around that. The gospel is not just news of vertical peace between us and God, but horizontal peace with us and one another. In the cross, our sin problems taken care of. We're brought near, we're joined to a family. And now we have new brothers and sisters and a new father. And we're called to live in a way that shows that we have a peace-filled relationship with our Father. Later in Ephesians, Paul will say it like this, 
I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So church family, we are at peace with God and one another. That's our position. Now we're called to live that out, to be eager to maintain that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I assure you, that won't be easy. Our life together as a church will often actually look unpeaceful because we still live with our sin. We're still this side of heaven. So if you haven't noticed, we're going to say things that offend each other. We're going to say things that are hurtful. We're going to take pride in the way we've chosen to live and we're going to want to impose that lifestyle on others and hurt them. Our stumble in lust and greed and gossip are going to damage our relationships with each other. Our gifting in ministry will be tainted with selfishness. Our laziness, when it comes to loving one another, will discourage each other. So we must be ready for those struggles because they're certainly going to be at work in us. We must not remember that that doesn't kind of supersede the peace that we have. Because our peace is not circumstances. Our peace is not what we experience. Our peace is a person. Jesus is our peace. He doesn't merely bring us peace. He doesn't open up an opportunity for us to achieve peace. He doesn't give us tools to make peace. He is our peace. And that just makes sense. Because through his body, he's united us to himself. He's borne our sin. Paul calls the church the very body of Christ. And so the peace that Jesus enjoys with God is our peace with God. Because we're in Christ. The peace that Jesus has for his church is our peace with his church because we're in Christ. So church, let's dig deep into Jesus. Let's not find unity in lesser things. Lesser things will promise us camaraderie for a short time, but they'll eventually split us apart. We'll wither away. So please listen carefully, dear church. We must never find our ultimate unity in anything but Jesus. I know we say that all the time. Core group, we said that all the time. But we say it all the time because it's so easy to forget. We must never find our ultimate unity in our skin color. We must never find our ultimate unity in our financial situation, in being homeschoolers or public schoolers, in being conservatives or liberals or moderates, which is a cool thing nowadays. We must never find our ultimate unity in sports allegiances or our common interests, if we find unity in those things, we'll die as a church, spiritually. And more than that, we'll be lying about the gospel. This message that we say is about reconciliation with everyone who is in Christ. And so church, let's ask ourselves, are we ready to live out this peace? Are we ready for people to come to us who don't look like us, who don't behave like us, don't raise their kids like us? Are we ready for them to come to us because they want to know Jesus? Is Jesus a strong enough bond to unite us? Or do we need something else? Let's strive together, church. Let's strive to lift Jesus up as the sole reason that we're even out of bed this morning. It's not merely tradition. It's not the expectations of our family. It's only because there's a person who lives and unites us. Let's pray for this. Let's pray that our Relationships will be marked by unity, by sacrificial love, by patience. And that when we, when we do find our relationships embittered or fractured or tense, 
that will pursue peace for the sake of Christ's glory, for the sake of our joy. And church, as your pastor, let me just encourage you with this. Because as I pray for you, I rejoice in the unity that I see. So I rejoice in seeing many of you lay aside your preferences in order to love others well. I rejoice in seeing many of you talking to one another, and as you do so, being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, abounding in love. I pray that that would just increase. And so week in and week out, my plan and our plan to make sure that that increases is to just look full-faced into the gospel of Jesus, to look at this person who unites us over and over and over and over and over again. There is no other message. Only in him can we find hope and unity. Over 200 years ago, a young 19-year-old Englishman named Charles Simeon was considering how he might have peace with God. And he was reading about the Jews. He was wondering how he might be right with God. This is what he wrote afterwards. This is the week leading up to Easter. He writes, as I was reading, I was met with this statement. that The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to a sacrifice. The thought came to my mind, into my mind, what, may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? If so, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. And so I sought to lay my, my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And on the Wednesday, I began to have a hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my beloved Savior. Church, that testimony is our testimony. We too have this sacrifice that has brought us peace. We too have peace with God and with each other. So how might we celebrate that this morning? I think one of the basic things that we understand as human beings that we can do with someone with whom we're at peace is to eat with them, to share a meal with them. There's something about fellowship around a table, around food. There's something there that signifies relationship, reconciliation. So church, this morning, we who are far off now are invited by God to his table, to fellowship with him. So let's come eat together in peace with God and with one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not left us far off, but you have brought us near in Christ. Lord, we just want a deeper understanding of what that means. We want a deeper glimpse of this amazing new life that we have. And so we pray for a greater love for you. We pray for a greater unity with one another. 
And we ask for your grace. And we praise you. And we ask that you would accept our worship now from grateful lips. In Jesus' name we pray.